Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John. We're going to continue in our study this morning, John chapter 10. And uh, I've entitled today's message, Showdown with the Shepherd. Showdown with the Shepherd. And I know if you are familiar with um, movies that are set in the Wild West, one of the trademark scenes in those movies is the showdown at high noon. We've all seen it, right? The dramatic music sets a tense tone as two gunmen, typically a sheriff and an outlaw, slowly walk towards one another down this main street of some old western town amid swirling dust and blowing tumbleweeds as the frightened townspeople all run for cover. And the two adversaries will stop several yards from each other and stare each other down while flexing their fingers above, above their holstered six-shooter and waiting for the other to make the first move. And then what sounds like simultaneous shots, fire, and yet one of them drops to the ground dead. And the score is settled. The dispute is ended. That's a showdown, right? A showdown is a final test or confrontation intended to settle a dispute or to force an issue to a conclusion. And the events that we're going to look at at Today, in John chapter 10, could be considered the final showdown between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Last time we were here in John chapter 10, we looked at the first part of this chapter where Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd, and we said, well, man, he's so much more than a good shepherd. How about a a great shepherd? How about the best shepherd? But he was simply comparing himself to bad shepherds, right? So the appropriate title would be good shepherd. And uh, he likened the Pharisees to thieves and robbers and strangers and hirelings. And he wanted the Pharisees and he wanted his followers to know what made him a better shepherd. And so we learned last time in verses uh, 1 through 21 how Jesus is a soul-caring shepherd, a a life-giving shepherd, and a self-sacrificing shepherd. And now in the remaining uh, portion of this chapter, John recorded the last direct confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. This this final interchange with his religious rivals was the climax of months of increasing opposition to Jesus and his ministry. And I don't know if you kept your little outline that I have handed out several times already, um, but if you can grab that out of your Bible and just look at it and, and the outline that we've been following here as we study through the Gospel of John is it all begins with the incarnation of the Son of God in chapter 1. Uh, particularly verses 1 through 18, and then we see the, the, the presentation of the Son of God in, in chapters 1 through 4, and then in, starting in chapter 5, all the way through this chapter, chapter 10, we've been seeing the opposition to the Son of God, and how uh, Jesus was opposed by His own people, and that opposition just grew and grew and grew, and uh, we're going to see in the next two chapters uh, the official rejection of the Son of God, and then finally in verses 13 through 17, we're going to see him go behind the scenes and uh, spend the majority of his remaining time here on earth with, with his disciples and uh, in the upper room discourse. And so we, we, we look, we're looking here at John chapter 10 and we're kind of talking about the, the kind of end of his ministry. You're like, well, wait a minute, we've got a long way to go. We're only halfway through. Well, we need to understand that, that uh, up until now, there's been about three years that have passed. 
And so we only have a few months left to go, and really chapter uh, 13, uh, as we're going to see on, is really just uh, really a few weeks, if, if not just a week, in the life of Christ. And so that's just the way John uh, decides to break this up. But uh, we see here in, in John chapter 10 that despite the, the ongoing persecution that Jesus endured from the hostile crowds, along with the multiple death threats that he had received by the Jewish leader, leaders, um, he decided to attend the Feast of Lights in Jerusalem. And John included this occasion here in his gospel, I think, to serve as a fitting conclusion to his public ministry, to the public ministry of Jesus. One commentator kind of brings us up to speed here, I think, well. He says this, For more than three years, Jesus had traveled the length and breadth of Israel, preaching the gospel, calling for repentance, confronting hypocritical false religion, instructing his disciples, and performing countless signs and wonders, which confirmed that he was the Messiah. Through both his words and his works, Jesus had clearly demonstrated his deity and equality with God. But tragically, the nation of Israel, led by their religious leaders, rejected the Messiah, just as the Old Testament predicted would happen. And instead of embracing him as their long-awaited Redeemer King, the people of Israel nailed him to a cross. And so here, in John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, all the way through the end of the chapter... Uh, This was the last time that Jesus taught in a public forum, and his intent was to settle the dispute once and for all that he truly was the long-awaited Messiah sent by God to redeem uh, his people. And this dialogue, as we'll see in just a moment, happened about two and a half months after the one recorded in the first 21 verses here, and I think John spliced these two dialogues together on purpose because Jesus used uh, the shepherd-sheep imagery uh, or metaphor in both of these dialogues, and so they really fit together uh, side by side, back to back. And so in light of that shepherd-sheep imagery, I want to draw out for you as we look through these verses this morning five marks of true sheep. Okay, five marks of true sheep or five marks of true Christians, okay? So this morning, uh, you can compare yourself to these five marks to determine whether or not you're a true sheep, whether or not you're a true Christian. And so let's look at these five marks together. First of all, true sheep are sovereignly chosen by the shepherd. True sheep are sovereignly chosen by the shepherd. Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Now, the Feast of Dedication was uh, celebrated in December, which was about two months uh, after the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles, which was held in October, and we, we have been looking at that feast and all that Jesus did and said during that time ever since uh, chapter 7, verse 1, when his brothers encouraged him to go up to the feast and make himself known publicly, and he refused to do that. He went secretly and then, of course, we know, went to the temple and uh, told everyone that he was the, the water, right, uh, that would quench their soul, and he was the light of the world, two of the most picturesque Um, uh, parts of that celebration. And so now here he's at the Feast of Dedication, um, which was in the month of December. 
And unlike all the other feasts that the Jews celebrated throughout the year, the Feast of Dedication was not instituted by God, and it was not prescribed in the Old Testament. This was a celebration that the Jews established by themselves uh, during the intertestamental period, which is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it was uh, uh, intended to commemorate the purification and rededication of the temple by a guy named Judas Maccabees on December 25th, 165 BC. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Judas Maccabees. Uh, Several years earlier, there was a king of Syria named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, That's probably a name you might uh, be familiar with. And he captured Jerusalem, and he plundered the temple treasury, and he desecrated the temple by sacrificing, of all things, a pig in the temple. I mean, talking about being unkosher, right? Uh, being not politically correct. You don't sacrifice a pig, right, in a Jewish temple, and yet he did. And he also erected a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And I believe that Daniel prophesied uh, about this event. Uh, he talks about in the book of Daniel the abomination of desolation. Uh, where the, the, the temple would be desecrated, would be uh, violated, would be uh, just it would be an abomination. And uh, this was, I, I think, a partial fulfillment of that. Ultimately, the abomination of desolation was re- referencing what the Antichrist will do um, during the tribulation when he will desecrate the temple, and that will ultimately be the abomination of desolation. But what Antiochus Epiphanes did was, a, was really a type of what the Antichrist will do. Kind of a foreshadowing of that. And uh, at the same time, Antiochus attempted to Hellenize Judea, which basically meant to make the Jews Greeks and just assimilate them into the Greek culture and stamp out Judaism altogether. And so uh, he was ruthless in his oppression of the Jews, and he required that they offer sacrifices to pagan gods, that they were uh, not allowed to own or read a copy of the Old Testament scriptures. They weren't allowed to observe the Sabbath. They were not allowed to circumcise their children. So as you can imagine, uh, the Jews weren't very happy with his oppressive rule, and so this resulted in what was called the Maccabean Revolt, when the Jews, under the leadership of Judas Maccabees, uh, defeated the Syrian armies and retook the temple and cleansed it and consecrated it during this eight-day period of time. And so uh, this became uh, an annual uh, Jewish holiday, also known as the Feast of Lights, um, because they would light lamps and candles in their homes during the eight-day celebration. In fact, Jews still observe this holiday Today, and it's called what? Hanukkah. This is the Feast of Lights. This is the Feast of the Dedication is what they were celebrating. And it says that Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The the portico of Solomon, or the Solomon's porch as it was often called, is a long covered walkway that's supported by these massive pillars on the east side of the, of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley. And so this was a popular place where the rabbis would teach their disciples. And more importantly, at this time of year, it, was, it, was a, a, it really provided protection from the elements, um, the rain and the cold and the wind during the winter months. And, it, and John makes it clear that it was winter. Notice verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him. Literally, they they pressed in around him, they, they kind of surrounded him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, if this is all we had to go on, you just read that at face value, you say, hey, that's pretty cool. Some people really wanted to know the truth about Jesus, right? Uh, just, just make it clear. Uh, we want to know. 
so that we can, we can know for sure what we're supposed to do with you. Are we supposed to follow you or are we supposed to reject you? What are, move on to someone else. But we know based on the context what comes immediately before this and what comes immediately after this. This was not a, a friendly inquiry. This is not a nice group of people, okay? Uh, these were hostile Jews, um, and they literally surrounded Jesus and, and almost in a forceful way and, and, and insisted that he clearly and openly declare his identity. One commentator describes the scene like this. He says, far from being an honest request for information, their inquiry was actually just another attempt to trap Jesus with a view to getting rid of him. Because he was the greatest threat to their power and prestige, they were desperately looking for a way to discredit him and dispose of him altogether. And so notice how Jesus responded here in verse 25. He said, Jesus answered and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You are not of my sheep. Um, Jesus basically said, listen, I've already told you who I am, and I've even proved it by my miracles that I've done, but you still don't believe me. And so all that Jesus had already said, all that he had already done should have been sufficient evidence to show them that he was the Messiah. But as it is with with every unbeliever, not just with these unbelievers, but with every unbeliever, the problem is not a lack of evidence, it's a lack of understanding. And ultimately, it's a lack of faith. If you're sitting here today and you've you've got your arms maybe crossed, at least uh, picturedly, and you're saying, hey, give me the evidence, prove it, prove it to me, pastor, prove it to me, why I should trust Jesus, why I should follow Jesus, why why I should believe in Jesus. Well, it's not more evidence that you're looking for, okay? Uh, We could stack up all the evidence in the world uh, to prove to you who Jesus is and, and what he's done is true, but it's a lack of understanding. You lack faith is what you lack. And that was the problem with these Jews, was not a lack of, lack of evidence, it was a lack of understanding. And no matter what more Jesus said or did, they still wouldn't repent and believe in him. And notice how Jesus explained the underlying reason why they refused to believe in him. Ultimately, it was because they were not included in the flock that the Father had handpicked to give him. Notice he says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And so what he was implying here was that the criteria for being saved was not being a part of the chosen race of Israel, right? Being one of the Jews, but being chosen by God for salvation. And here again, we have another veiled reference to the doctrine of election. We saw that in Verse 3 of the same chapter, verse 3 says to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they'll become one flock with one shepherd. We see um, uh, many times in the words of Christ this, this, these veiled references that, that this group of people who follow him were chosen by God and given to him as a special love gift. In John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 40, 
For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 44, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And so from the, from, from the standpoint of human responsibility, the reason why these Jews didn't believe is because they deliberately rejected the truth. I mean, the evidence was everywhere, and, and from a human perspective, they just rejected it. But from the standpoint of divine sovereignty, the reason they didn't believe in the evidence, that they didn't put their faith in Christ and follow Christ, is they were not Christ's sheep. And so again, we need to always keep in mind that when we're thinking about our salvation in particular, or another person's salvation, we always have to look at it from from two perspectives. We have to look at it from a human perspective, our perspective, and we have to look at it from God's perspective, from a divine perspective. And when you think about your salvation, you think about it from a human perspective. From your vantage point, you were there living a life of sin and you were confronted with the gospel and you heard the great news about how Jesus died on the cross to save sinners like you and, and that, that uh, you uh, responded and you repented of your sin and you placed your faith in Christ. You decided, right, to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what happened from a human perspective, Right? But from God's perspective, the only reason why you were convicted of your sin, right, and that you were open to the gospel and that you, were, you repented of your sin and you committed your life to follow Christ is because God granted you, right, repentance and faith. And so we become Christ's sheep by believing in him, but from a divine standpoint, we believe because we're his sheep. And again, this might sound like double talk, um, and, it, and, it, and it, from a human perspective, it is, right? Because we can't comprehend this. It's a mystery that we cannot fathom, but we can rejoice in it. And I think that's what the Bible expects us to do. The Bible never apologizes um, for uh, this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. In fact, it never even tries to harmonize it. Sometimes it just kind of puts it right in our face and, and kind of puts uh, man's, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty right in the same verse. And God's like, just deal with it. <laughs> Get over it. Okay? For example, Luke chapter 22. Uh, here is the account of uh, the betrayal by Judas of Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 22. Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples, for indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. That's God's sovereignty, that God had sovereignly determined before the foundation of the earth that his son would be betrayed by Judas, right? But, the verse goes on, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It's not like Judas can say, well, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my decision, right? It wasn't my idea, Right? It was God's idea. If you're going to get mad at somebody about the betrayal of Christ, get mad at God because it was his. No. God held Judas 100% responsible. And so you've got God's sovereignty and you've got man's responsibility in the betrayal of Christ. How about the death of Christ? I love this verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And oftentimes uh, there's a discussion or argument about, well, who's responsible for the death of Christ? I mean, who, who should take the blame 
that Jesus was crucified, this, this, this innocent man, uh, this, this godly man, uh, why, why was he uh, killed in such a horrific way? Uh, who's responsible? Who, who are we to blame? Well, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, uh, in the sermon that he preached after Pentecost, uh, he said this about Jesus. He said, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of God, this man, and put him to death. So whose fault was it that, that, that Jesus died? Was it God's fault or was it the Jews' fault? Who's to blame? Who could take responsibility? Both, okay? God's sovereignty is that it was his predetermined plan and foreknowledge, right? He determined this was the plan of salvation was that his son would be crucified. And yet at the same time, that doesn't let the Jews or the Romans off the hook, right? You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so again, we've got to learn to live with this, this tension, right? And not just blow it off and go, well, that's, see, that's, that's why I don't believe the Bible. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical, right? Well, yeah, from a human standpoint, it is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. But guess what? That's, that's the price we pay for a God who's worthy to be worshipped, that is way beyond us, whose, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whose ways are higher than our ways. And, and the fact that, that uh, you may continually be butting your head up against the truth of God's word and resisting, right, refusing to embrace the truth of God's word uh, may be an indication that you are not one of his sheep, right? Because we know the Pharisees uh, were not part of his flock. And, uh, and, and what do, uh, what's, what's the opposite? If you're not a sheep, what are you? A goat, right? Matthew 25 talks about that there will come a day when God will divide uh, unbelievers from believers and he'll put the sheep on one side and he'll put the goats on the other side. And what do, what do goats do? What are goats notorious for? Button heads, right? Button into stuff, ramming into stuff, right? And just, just, and so the idea, the fact that the Pharisees just continually butt their heads up against Jesus instead of submitting to him and following him proved that they were goats and not sheep. And so the first characteristic or first mark of a, of a true sheep uh, is that, that they uh, have been sovereignly chosen by the shepherd. Now, this brings us to the second point here, the second mark of a true sheep. In verse 27, true sheep attentively and intimately follow the shepherd. True sheep attentively and intimately follow the shepherd. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus said something very similar to this back in verse 3, right? He says that he would... Uh, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Uh, the point here is that those who have been chosen for salvation will heed Christ's call to salvation and then continue in, in faith and obedience until they reach glory. That's really the essence of what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 and 29 and 30, when he talks about the, the, how, how a person is saved, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the, the, the point is that the lives of, of those who truly belong to Christ 
are marked by listening to and obeying his word. The way you know, one of the ways you, you, you can know for sure that someone's a Christian is that they say and do everything that Jesus says that we should say and do. We live a life of obedience. Um, you know someone's a goat when they could care less what Jesus said to say or do. They just live their life however they want to live. And, and in particular, you can pick them out in church Right? You say, well, there's goats in church? You know, there's, I thought was, we were all sheep here. No, there's goats in church. Goats show up at church every Sunday. Okay? You say, well, how do I know if I'm a goat or if the person sitting next to me is, 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 is a goat? Right? Well, it, I think it's pretty easy. What are they doing when the word of Christ is being proclaimed? What is their response? Are they just kind of like looking out the window, looking at their watch, looking at their phone, just, you know, just, just out? You know, what, what are they doing? Right? He says, listen, my sheep hear my voice. True believers love to listen to the word of Christ. They have a hunger for the truth. And not only, they're not just hearers of the word. Oh, yeah, that was a great sermon. But then they want to go out and they want to live that out. They want to obey what they heard. They want to honor Christ by following him and obeying him. And so if you're just kind of indifferent and apathetic to to the word, to the preaching and the teaching, that's evidence that you may not be saved. Why? Because sheep manifest their nature by loyally following Christ. I, I appreciate what one commentator said. He said it this way, the proof of faith is obedience. Only he who truly obeys truly believes. And that's an evidence that you have an intimate relationship with Christ. Let's not miss this. My sheep hear my voice. Uh, and they follow me, yes, but notice what it says in the middle, and I know them. And I know them. Uh, Jesus knows whose are his and whose aren't, right? And um, some people are going to be shocked someday because uh, in Matthew chapter 7, right, it says that many will say to me at the end as they stand before the Lord, 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 didn't we do all this stuff? In other words, they're claiming to be Christians and followers of Christ, and we did all this stuff in your name, and he'll say, depart from me, I never, what? Knew you. I never knew you. So it's not about how much, you know, do you know Christ? The, the, the real question is, does he know you? And so the, the idea here is that a, that a true sheep attentively and intimately know and follow the shepherd. Okay? Number three, true sheep are eternally guarded by the shepherd. True sheep are eternally guarded by the shepherd. And here in these next two verses, verses 28 and 29, and I would even include verse 30 in this, um, you, I'm sure some of you already are, are prepared for this because you, you got it underlined, you got it circled, you got it starred, you got notes in the margin in your Bible because there, here is the clearest statement in the entire Bible regarding the doctrine of eternal security. And what, what I mean by that, the doctrine of eternal security is, is basically once saved, always saved, right? That if you're truly saved, it's impossible for you to lose your salvation. Notice what Jesus goes on to say, and I give eternal life to them, who? To my sheep, right? And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so again, if you're truly saved, okay, it's impossible for you to lose your salvation. That's the essence of what is being taught here. Matthew chapter 24, interesting um, side note, um, Jesus was talking about false teachers 
leading people astray. We talked about that last week. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. What's his point? Is it possible to lead somebody who's truly saved away from the faith? No, it's not possible. Now, you may struggle with sin. Do I hear him? Amen. You, you, you struggle with sin, right? Sheep still sin, right? You still struggle with sin. You may falter. You may fail. You may backslide. And you may be led astray for a season. But nothing can or ever will separate you from the love of God in Christ. And we see here in John 10, notice verse 29, my father who has given them to me. Again, here's this idea that, that God gave Christ a flock of sheep as a love gift. That, that we are, as his sheep, uh, a gift of love from the father to the son. And, and Christ isn't going to go, oh yeah, thanks dad, appreciate that. Right? I mean, this is like a, a, a prayer, wow, thank you, right? You, you have, you, when you got that gift of all gifts, right? You're like, oh, you want to protect it, you want to take care of it, right? You were so grateful for it. And listen, Christ is the perfect shepherd who promises to protect and never lose any member of the flock that God has given. In fact, he says that specifically back in John chapter 6, verse 39. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. He said that again in John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, with my sheep here on earth, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Who was that? Judas, right? So that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then he goes on in, in chapter 18, verse 7. Uh, when he was being arrested, he said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazarene, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In other words, Jesus knew that the disciples weren't ready to be arrested. That, that, might, have been, that might have done them in spiritually. And so he said, hey, listen, if you're looking for me, take me, let these guys go. Um, they weren't ready. Well, and we know that because of what happened to Peter, right? Uh, he fell flat on his face. And, and yet, what, what a blessing to know that he was restored. This is, I think uh, this is a great case study here, Luke chapter 22, okay, talking about a true sheep. We know Peter was one of, of Christ's sheep, right? Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan was doing his best to snatch Peter from Christ, Right? But, Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, Satan did get him to what? Deny Christ three times. But then Peter repented, and Jesus restored him, um, and ultimately didn't lose him, right? He wasn't a lost cause by any means. Notice again, back in John 10, just some of the language here that, that just shows us our eternal security in Christ. Verse 28, and I gave, or excuse me, and I give eternal life to them. Again, this is a, just a, a kind of basic Christianity 101, but, but, but salvation is a free gift from God, right? Um, 
It's not something we can buy. It's not something we can work for. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So eternal life is a gift, and if we don't do anything to earn our salvation then how can we do anything to lose our salvation? Warren Wiersbe said it this way, if we are not saved by our own good works, but by his grace, then we cannot be lost by our bad works. In other words, some people live in fear. Oh, I, oh man, I just messed up. I, I might have just lost my salvation. I got to make up for that and do, do something good to make up for that bad thing, or I'm going to lose my salvation. Well, Romans eleven six 6 says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Listen, if we're saved by grace through faith alone, right, you believe that? That you didn't do anything, it's not of works, lest any man should boast, then what would make you think you could do something? If you didn't do anything to get saved, how could you do anything to get unsaved? So God grants us eternal life. Notice it doesn't say, Jesus didn't say, I give conditional life to them. Is that what your Bible says? Conditional life? In other words, well, I'll give you, I'll give you life forever uh, if, right, if you do this or this. No, this is not based on what we do or don't do, but what Christ has done and continues to do, okay? This is eternal life, not conditional life. One commentator said this, he said, the security of the sheep is found in the ability of the shepherd to defend and preserve his flock. Such security does not depend on the ability of the frail sheep. Aren't you thankful for that? That your uh, eternal security is not based on you (laughs) because we'd all be in trouble if that was the case. Again, he says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. This is a a very specific promise that Christ made that none of his sheep will ever spend eternity in hell. And we also know it's an impossibility for Christ to fail to keep his promises, right? And it's also impossible for Christ to take something back that he's already given to us. It's not like, hey, I'll give you eternal life. Oh, sorry, you blew it. I'm taking it back. I mean, Christ isn't an Indian giver, right? And even if, it, if, if any of this were possible, there's a, there's a safety net in the next verse, right? Verse 20, 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So God the Father serves as, as the ultimate protection, if you will, and here, again, is just further assurance and further extra reinforcement to our, our salvation, that the Father is more powerful than everyone and anything uh, in this universe, and so no one could possibly snatch us from his hand, not a robber, not a wolf, not even Satan himself. And so once you commit your life to Christ, your life, as Paul said in Colossians 3.3, is forever hidden with Christ in God. And again, the picture here is you've got, you've got, uh, you've got the Christian who, who the little sheep is in Christ's hands, and then, then Christ's hand is in the Father's hands. You've got two hands wrapped around uh, your soul, if you will. And, and I, I can't think of a more profound 
security for us as Christians to be wrapped in the hand of Christ, which is wrapped in the hand of the Father. And that's really the point, I think, of verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Father and Son work together to keep the sheep secure. Now, we love to use that verse, I and the Father are one, to prove uh, the deity of Christ. And there's, this is as clear a statement of Christ's deity as you'll find anywhere in Scripture, that Jesus is God in the fullest sense and is equal with the Father in every way. That's what we mean by the deity of Christ. Um, Coloss- or John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Um, Colossians 1.19 uh, talks about how it pleased God to put all the fullness of himself in Christ. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 uh, says it this way, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so we know that, that here, uh, I and the Father are one, is, is a reference to the deity of Christ. But in this context, Jesus was not saying that he and God were the same person, but that they had the same purpose. I think that's the emphasis here. Okay? The Father and the Son are two distinct persons in the Trinity. The Father is God, and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Did you get that? It's another mystery. It's the Trinity, right? But based on what he has just said and here in this context, I think that Jesus was clearly emphasizing that he and the Father were completely unified and equally committed to protecting and preserving the sheep. I and the Father are one. And so their wills are identical in regarding the salvation of the sheep, and they function as one when it comes to preserving us. John MacArthur makes this statement here. He says, quote, Nowhere in Scripture is there a stronger affirmation of the absolute eternal security of all true Christians. Jesus plainly taught that the security of the believer in salvation does not depend on human effort, but is grounded in the gracious, sovereign election, promise, and power of God. By the way, if you struggle with the doctrine of election, this is the fruit, this is the benefit of the doctrine of election. If you believe in the doctrine of election, you also, what comes as a natural consequence of that, is eternal security. You can't have one without the other, right? If you have to do something in order to be saved, then there is a good risk that you could lose your salvation. And, you know, I think it's sad to me that there are many Christians who live in fear of losing their salvation. There's churches that teach that you could lose your salvation. And so what motivates people to obey Christ is, oh, no, oh, no. They live in fear instead of they're, they're, they're obeying out of love out of love for Christ and, and what he's done for us. And I appreciate another one of my favorite commentaries, William McDonald, the Believer's Bible Commentary. He said this. He asked this very penetrating question. He says, does this mean then, all this discussion about eternal security, how you can't lose your salvation, he says, does this mean then that a person may be saved and then live the way he pleases? Can he be saved and then carry on in the sinful pleasures of this world? I mean, you think about it, This is a sweet deal. Someone's like, yeah, this is a sweet deal. Well, I can't lose, I, there's nothing I can do to lose my salvation. Well, then I'm going for it, man. I'm just going to go out and do whatever I want to do because I can't lose my salvation. Well, if that's your attitude, then you're probably not saved. You're probably not saved. He says, no. His answer is no. Why? Because 
a Christian no longer desires to do these things. He wants to follow the shepherd. We don't live the Christian life in order to become a Christian or in order to retain our salvation. We live a Christian life because we're Christians. We desire to live a holy life, not out of fear of losing our salvation, but out of gratitude to the one who died for us. A big motivation difference there, right? I don't know about you. I don't want to be a part of a church where we're all living in fear, coming in all like hunkered down. Oh, man, I blew it this week. I'm hoping God's not too mad at me this week, right? I'm here, I'm here at church, so he'll see, check off. Look at God, I'm here. I'm making up for all the bad things I did this week. No, I don't want to live in a, be a part of a church like that. I'll say, you know, I want to praise God that he saved us. He was so gracious. He was so merciful. And we just live lives of obedience out of just grateful love. He goes on, he says, the doctrine of eternal security does not encourage careless living, but rather is a strong motive for holy living. In fact, it's the exact opposite, right? Sometimes I wonder if why churches teach that to their people, right? If, if, if they find out that they, they can't lose their salvation, then how are we going to keep them under control? How are we going to keep them out of the bar on Friday night? How are we going to keep them from, you know, shacking up with other people's wives and husbands and, uh, right? Well, we'll just tell them that they'll lose their salvation. That'll keep them out of trouble, <laughs> What a, what a wrong, what a, what a bad motivation, right? No, the exact opposite. If we tell people, guess what? You can't lose your salvation. You're like, are you kidding me? That salva- my salvation, is that awesome? Why would I want to sin against such grace and mercy? And so we have another mark here, and that is that really an encouraging mark that true sheep are eternally guarded by the shepherd. True sheep are eternally guarded by the shepherd. And then number four, I, I wasn't sure what to do with this next section in, in this regard with these five marks of true sheep, but I just said it this way. True sheep would never foolishly kill the shepherd. True sheep would never foolishly kill the shepherd. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And this is not the first time we've seen this. This is, in fact, the third time that the Jews tried to stone Jesus. We saw it back in chapter 5 and in chapter 8 which, by the way, was the appropriate punishment for anyone uh, who claimed to be God. This is what the law of Moses said in Leviticus 24, 16, that if anyone was guilty of blasphemy, right, they should be stoned. And if Jesus was just a man, he should have got stoned. But that's the point. He wasn't just a man. He's God. And yet the hostile crowd that had surrounded him and insisted that he tell him, to tell them who he was. They got the incriminating evidence that they were looking for, they were hoping for. In fact, they were so incensed by what Jesus claimed, they, rather than just arresting him, right, they, wanted to, they just wanted to get done with this guy and put him out of his misery and uh, just, just execute him on the spot. That's what they were trying to do. Even though the, the, uh, the Romans had taken away that right uh, from them. And so notice how Jesus responds here. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? In other words, are, are you serious? I mean, I've done a lot of good things. I mean, this is totally inconsistent. You killing a guy who's only done good for others, right? I mean, really, you got to think through what you're doing here, guys. Um, I've done many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So again, they weren't stoning him or wanting to stone him because of anything he did, but because of what he said. He said he was God. Now, some cult 
teachers, some cults and even liberal theologians, uh, like to argue that Jesus never claimed he was God. Have you ever gotten that? You got to knock on the door, right? They want to come and talk to you, and, and you get into a discussion about Jesus, and they say, well, you know, Jesus is God. And you're like, no, 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 he never claimed that he was God. Oh, really? Well, let's turn to John chapter 10, verse 31. Why, why were they, why were they uh, stoning him then? See, the people here knew exactly what he claimed, and that's precisely why they killed him. So you can say whatever you want about what you think Jesus meant here. All he didn't mean, he wasn't claiming to be God. But based on the Jews' actions here, it's clear that the Jews knew what he meant. And if he hadn't meant it, it would have been very easy for him at that point to say, hey, listen, time out. You guys are misunderstanding me, okay? That's not what I meant. Put the stones away, all right? That's not what I meant. Did he do that? No, because it's exactly what he meant. He, they weren't misunderstanding him. They understood him perfectly. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? And what Jesus is doing here is he's going back to the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6, where Asaph uh, applied the term gods to human judges and prophets who served as God's spokesmen, as God's representatives through whom God uh, would speak to his people. And so he's saying, listen, listen, I'm God's premier spokesman. I'm his ultimate representative whom he set apart and sent into this world on a mission to save the world. I am the incarnate word himself, the very revelation of God in human flesh, and you guys are having a problem with me calling myself son of God, right? I mean, it was applied to humans, right, back in the Old Testament. This doesn't make any sense. But let's not miss that little parenthetical statement there. I don't know if it has parentheses in your Bible. It doesn't mind in verse 35. And, oh, by the way, Jesus says, the scripture cannot be broken. <laughs> It'd be easy just to kind of blow past that. And, and, and yet this is an epic declaration by the son of God regarding the authority and inerrancy of the Word of God. It's right up there with Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That little stroke there, the word in the Greek is, is the word for the Hebrew yod, which is just like a, would be like a little apostrophe in the English language. I mean, Jesus is like, even down to the apostrophe, this thing's going to come true. This thing's going to be fulfilled. And again, just to hear the Son of God, right, affirm the authority and the inerrancy of the Word of God. I love that little expression that the Scripture cannot be broken. Look at verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them through you, although you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, he's saying, guys, listen, how can you deny right, that what I'm doing is, is from the Father? No human being could do the things that I'm doing, right? Clearly, these are from God, and, uh, and you need to grapple with the fact that you're going to stone a guy, right, uh, who's done nothing but good for you and nothing but things that were clearly God's doing. 
And so what you're about to do doesn't make any sense at all. It's inconsistent with who I am and what I've done. And so he just wanted them to admit that, that God was all over him, if you will. Verse 39, therefore they were seeking again to seize him. Again, just, just kind of la, 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 la. We don't want to hear anything you have to say. They, we just want to grab you. We want to arrest you. And it says, and he eluded their grasp. And we're getting used to this, right? Jesus is an escape artist here. He escaped again. Uh, he did it in chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 12. He's going to escape again. Why? Because it wasn't his time, right? I think it's interesting here. He eluded their grasp. And as we're going to see in verse 40, he would go away. He, he would leave Jerusalem and go to the opposite side of the Jordan River, and he would not return. The next time he would step foot in Jerusalem was when he rode in on the donkey, right, on Palm Sunday, declaring himself as Israel's king. And so this thing is going down. I mean, this is, this is coming, it's coming to the end here. And uh, this is how severe it is. He left and never came back until that final week. Well, there's one more mark of a true sheep, true Christian in verses 40 to 42. True sheep faithfully bear witness of the shepherd. True sheep faithfully bear witness of the shepherd. Notice verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Ironically, Jesus' ministry, public ministry, ended where it began. Uh, in Perea, where John was baptizing and where he had originally baptized Jesus, right? And, the, and uh, as we know, uh, the, the Spirit came down and, and the voice came from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that was the beginning that launched Jesus' public ministry here. And so after eluding arrest, Jesus retreated to the east side of the Jordan River there. And uh, notice what it says, though, about John the Baptist. I love this. Many came to him, verse 41, and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And so Jesus was well-received here in Perea. Why? Um, Why did so many believe in him when he got there? Well, it was as a direct result of John the Baptist's testimony. The people remembered what John had said about Jesus. Like, for instance, back in John chapter 1, Jesus showed up where, Jesus was, or where John was baptizing. And John said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He went on to say in verse 34 of chapter 1, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. He went on to say in in John chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so this was John's witness. This was John's testimony of Christ. And so we see that John's ministry here had an enduring impact and was still bearing fruit long after he was dead. You remember he got his head cut off, right? Handed to Herod on a platter, literally, and, uh, and yet his ministry was still bearing much fruit. But notice how John records what the people said. It says, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. In other words, he was not a miracle worker. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't do any signs and wonders as far as we know. He, he was simply a faithful witness who pointed people to Jesus Christ. 
In other words, his ministry was not spectacular, it was not sensational, but it was true. One commentator said this, No greater testimony to a witness could be penned. All that he said about Jesus was true. And then he says this, Let every teacher, preacher, and witness aspire to the same. I don't know what you're looking for to be your legacy, right? What they'll put on your tombstone, what you'll be remembered for most, right? Oh, man, that guy was sensational. Man, he was just outstanding. He was just a spectacular, blah, 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 right? Or to say, you know what? Everything that came out of that guy's mouth when it came to Jesus Christ was true. He spoke the truth about Jesus Christ. I mean, let's face it. Most of us will never be known outside of Montgomery, Okay? This is the way life is, right? Only a few kind of break through and become world-renowned. Uh, few of us will do any great things, if you will, on the scale of the Billy Grahams and the Crusades and all that kind of stuff. But we can all bear a true and faithful testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ so that others can come to believe in him. And I would want it to be said of me and all of us that everything we say and everything that we do is true, is a true and accurate reflection of Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what, what more could you ask for than that, right? And so John's example here should inspire us in our witness for Christ. Well, this was the end of Jesus' public ministry. And... Unfortunately, many rejected him, but at the same time, many believed in him. And uh, it's the same, tr- same is true today, right? There's many people who continue to reject Christ, and there are many people who receive Christ. The question is, what are you going to do with Christ? Are you going to continue to reject Christ because of some preconceived ideas about who you think Jesus is or was and did, or because of your love for your sin? that you don't want to give up and so you're just going to keep rejecting Christ? Or will you receive Christ? True Christians are indebted to Christ for all eternity. True Christians follow and obey Christ. True Christians are confident in Christ. True Christians affirm the words and works of Christ. And true Christians tell others about Christ. Just another way of looking at the true marks, right? Or the marks of a true Christian. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you most of all for the word incarnate, your son, Jesus Christ. And here we have the maximum uh, potency of, of, of your power when we're, when we're not only looking at your word, we're looking at the word, Jesus Christ. And so it's doubly powerful as we go through the Gospel of John. And I just pray your power would be at work in all of our lives. Lord, uh, those who have yet to commit their lives to Christ, would you be gracious this morning to grant them repentance and faith? And Lord, those of us that have come to Christ, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ and that we would not seek our own glory, uh, but that we would just simply want to be faithful and true and uh, that that would be what we're known for, Lord, because ultimately you get all the glory um, when, when we, are, we are that way and we think that way about our lives and our ministries. So just help us to be a bold witnesses for Christ this week that we'd remember what a joy, what a privilege it is to be able to proclaim the glories of this amazing, awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.